The following message is entitled, The Dark Shades of Grace, Part 2. This message was given during the morning service on May 29, 2022, at the East Side Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We return again, as I say, for those listening remotely on various devices, podcasts, or the website, we return again to the first epistle of Timothy, verse 2, and the one word grace. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Normally I preach on the marks of godliness from Titus 2 on the last Sunday of the month, but I'm staying in this study until I finish this study of grace. The sermon title, as I mentioned to our own congregation, is The Dark Sides of Grace, Part 2. To repeat that, there are no dark or evil sides of God's grace. The dark sides are what we as believers can do to grace in our lives. We can allow our thinking to attack grace or to manipulate it, and we continue to learn of that today. In the introduction, Let's learn the dark side of William Wilberforce. He lived from 1759 to 1833 in London. William Wilberforce was best remembered as a leading figure heading up the movement to outlaw the slave trade through the British Empire. Hollywood film was made of him last year, which was not very accurate from what I've read. They downplayed his evangelical Christianity. He was a born-again Christian, came to Christ in his 20s. Had uh, many evangelical leaders that influenced his life. Over the course of his life, he wrote a series of spiritual journals as a record of his Christian pilgrimage. They record his beliefs, his struggles, his view of the Bible, and his challenges of being a parliamentarian. His previously unpublished journals were released in print for the first time last year. He has direct descendants that are still alive today, and these journals had never been in publication before. And they give tremendous insight, especially into his spiritual struggles. William Wilberforce desperately wanted to live for his Lord and Savior. I believe he was truly saved. But sadly, he placed himself into the bondage of countless rules he forced upon himself that were unbiblical. Then when he failed his own man-made rules, he would crash spiritually. He was at his core a legalist, sadly. His motto was self-denial and restraint of his outward actions and appetites through a series of rules he invented for himself. Listen to his heart-wrenching battle in these journals that I'm reading that he was doomed to lose this battle to. This journal entry is from 1787. Quote, I trust I will better keep my rules than I have done in the past. These are my resolutions of temperance that I make at this moment. No dessert. No tastings one thing in fruit, one in a second course, simplicity, in quantity moderate, as little thought about my eating and drinking as possible either before or after. 
Never more than six glasses of wine. <laughs> he realized when yeah, he realized when he wrote that that he needed to watch that. So he's, and these are kind of cut up phrases because it was a journal. He didn't expect anyone like me be reading from a pulpit three hundred years later, you know. So so he explains that now. He realized that's not good, six glasses. So he goes, My common allowance is two or three glasses to resolve the number. In other words, he didn't want to get close to six. So he set his level at six, but he was worried about that, so he only sets two or three. And the sort of dinner beforehand and keep to my determinations. To be in bed always if possible and well by 11 p.m. and be up at 6 a.m. In general, to reform according to my so often repeated resolutions. These are now made in the presence of God and will, I would humbly hope, be adhered to. I will every night note down whether I have been successful or not and be scrupulous in minute points, end quote. This is a big thing back in the 1700s for born-again Christians. Jonathan Edwards made hundreds of resolutions. And um, sadly, most of those were legalistic as well. Um, this was something that these... Seeking to be men of God, leaders throughout the world, especially the Western society, believed that this was the essence of godliness, the conforming of your outward behavior. Did he succeed? Of course not. We can't reform ourselves by keeping outward man-made rules and the power of our own wills. He failed time and time again. This, what he was partaking of was profoundly self-destructive legalism. Wilberforce said his goal in life, and I quote, was to, quote, reform my life by my resolutions. Of course, he never succeeded. Human self-discipline to keep rules has no power. No Christian has willpower to be holy. Wilberforce mentioned nothing of internal reform into Christ's likeness. This is at least, I'm through one-third of his journals. There's nothing there on that. Uh, nor of the need for prayer. He did pray, but he didn't pray correctly. Nor for the hopeless sense that he could not do this in his own power. When he prayed, he prayed that God would help him with his own rules. God's never going to answer such a prayer. Okay? If you think being godly is going to bed at 11 p.m. and getting up at 6 a.m. and you pray that God would help you to do that, that's not godliness. A few months later, in 1788, he said this concerning his efforts. Quote, The life I am lead, not leading is unfavorable in all respects. It's a double negative, but it's his journals. They're unedited. Both to mind and body. As little suitable to me considered as an invalid, spiritually he's talking about, under all peculiar circumstances of my situation, as it is becoming my character and profession as a Christian, Indolence and intemperance are its capital features. He's saying, I failed again and again with my resolutions. He considered his primary mark of godliness is an interesting word that we don't use today. It's antiquated. He called his philosophy of Christianity abstemiousness. Abstemiousness. You can hear somewhat the word abstain in there. Abstemiousness was 
a philosophy to keep away from food and alcohol. That doesn't seem to have changed much in the Christian church today. Certainly alcohol, staying away from it is a good thing, but food is, food law legalism abounds in the church today. This is a major tool that Satan uses. Food law legalism. Anytime you feel any shade of guilt eating anything, you're a food law legalist. It's everywhere. And as we studied in 1 Timothy 6, it's the mark of the last days among believers. Abstaining from foods is a mark of the apostasy of the last days church. Now you might think he was pretty young in his 20s when he wrote those things. How about years later? I fast forwarded to the end of his journals to see what was happening with William Wilberforce. Did he change? No change. 23 years later, I was reading his journal entries from 1811 where he continued to castigate himself for breaking his own rules. We sadly discovered that nothing changed in William Wilberforce in 23 years. Isn't that tragic? He never seemed to grasp the true nature of godliness as laid out in the scriptures. Legalists never learn, never grow, never progress. They are dogs who forever return to their own vomit, as Proverbs says. This is the profound problem with most born-again Christians. Nothing has changed in the body of Christ from Wilberforce's years in the 17 and 1800s to today, believers today, just like Wilberforce, swing from legalism to licentiousness to quietism, as we have seen, and they become devastated by failure, and many just give up. They always assume that their way of thinking about the Christian faith is true, and then such people judge such teachings as I'm sharing in this study in the Bible as being false. Because these things that I'm teaching didn't work for them. Or they think their way is the right way and that I'm wrong. Legalists always know better. You can write this under the introduction. Like Wilberforce, legalists know better and are unteachable. Legalists know better and are unteachable. Wilberforce wasn't willfully rebellious. He just didn't know any better. He didn't know any better at all. He had mentors, and he records the mentor's advice. Never confronted him on this. Most of the leadership in Great Britain and in early America were trapped by this thinking. It rarely occurs to deceive, occurs to deceive Christians that their own views of the Christian life are a form of self-destruction. Legalism destroys your Christianity. Simple as that. And why am I teaching this? Not to make you an expert on four types of destruction against grace. The four are legalism, licentiousness, quietism. We've seen those. I need to attack quietism from the Bible yet. And then we'll see today pietism. If I don't finish them, I'm going to continue right to next Sunday. I don't want this to wait to June... 19th when I'm back in the pulpit. I'm doing this not so you can become an expert on these terms and oh, they're so complex that I don't understand everything. There's a very simple goal here. I want to lay you and I waste. I want to completely devastate you into a sense 
of helplessness. That's what I'm after. Somebody could say, oh, this is so complex. This is you and me. Your sin nature is complex. Your sin nature can do these things without me ever teaching you about them. And the evidence, as I said last Sunday, that we are self-sufficient and don't feel helpless is our devastated prayer life. As we were stripped raw at conversion, completely leveled on our own self-sufficiency, hopeless and helpless to save ourselves, this study is to completely strip and devastate ourselves into our own self-sufficiency as being hopeless and helpless. That's why I'm doing this. To drive us back to the desperation that we had when we got converted. When we were saved, nothing to the cross did we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Decades later, now I've kind of got it all figured out myself. I can do this. These attackers of grace, grace negators, legalism, licentiousness, quietism, pietism, are sophisticated, satanic weapons that take almost every believer down. You don't go to Bible school to learn about these four. Your sin nature's already got them figured out. Your sin nature has trained you in these four areas because these are what send unbelievers to hell. Their sins are guided by legalism, licentiousness, quietism, pietism. The human sin nature is wired for these. You don't even have to learn them. You'll do them. The reason we're learning them is so you can see it in your own life. And repent. The better way is grace living, as Paul says in verse 2. Grace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul teaches us then right up front in verse 2 that our Christian lives depend completely on the power of God working through these three divine attributes of God's character. Grace, mercy, and peace. This is tri-power transformation. And we're in tri-power number one, grace. And I've already taught you how grace living works. In your note sheet then, let's review these things we've learned so far. Grace living is simple. Saved by faith, live by faith. Simple. Faith triggers saving grace empowerment. Faith triggers sanctifying grace empowerment. You're to live exactly as you got saved by faith. And you're not if your prayer life is devastated. That's your trigger. That is your evidence of supreme spiritual illness. Very simple. Your prayer life or lack thereof is the evidence. And we're not talking about prayers like help me today, be with me today, give me a good day, keep me safe physically, help me to earn money well today. We're talking spiritual prayer. Not Santa Claus, give me stuff prayers. Now, what have we learned in this 
Shades of Grace series, mini-series so far. Number one, living by faith does not negate obedience to the word. Living by faith does not negate obedience to the word. Those who define legalism as obeying God's word or doing do's and don'ts in the word of God are licentious. That's licentiousness. Number two, we live by faith in Christ through the power of the Spirit by obeying his word. We live by faith in Christ through the power of the Spirit by obeying his word. Does the Bible have power? Well, yeah. Hebrews says it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, but it is not intrinsic power. It is not power self-created. The Bible is not a living entity by itself. It is the word of God. It is God's power that empowers the word. Are we clear on that? We live by faith in Christ through the power of the Spirit by obeying his word. Number three, grace living is not adhering to rules we invent that are not in the Bible. Nor does grace living rely on keeping biblical rules for holiness in our own power, obviously. We're to keep biblical rules for holiness as we trust the Lord. So at the end of number three, you should say, you should write in, in grace living relying on keeping biblical rules for holiness in our own power. Grace living is not adhering to rules we invent that are not in the Bible, nor grace does grace living rely on keeping biblical rules for holiness in our own power. Number four, grace living is holiness manifested supremely by an internal transformation of our minds into the mind of Christ through our obedience to God's word. That's grace living right there, number four. That's biblical. Grace living is holiness manifested supremely by internal transformation of our minds into the mind of Christ through our obedience to God's word. Wilberforce never figured this out. Who cares whether there's two or three glasses, no diet, no, no dessert. This is, this is terrible, terrible evil. God could care less about that. Let's stop at number four. Go to Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 20. If you have died with Christ, Colossians 2.20, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle do not taste, do not touch. How simple is that? Where do we err with food? Not in certain things we taste or don't taste. He continues to describe it. Verse 22, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. So man-made rules are going to perish. Your man-made rules and mine are going to end when you die. Verse 22, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, 
These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. This is Wilberforce right here. In self-made religion and self-abasement. That's deprivation, folks. Self-abasement is depriving yourself and you feel holy. And severe treatment of the body. One more marathon. But are no value against fleshly indulgence. That's where our sin nature operates. That's it. Literally to be full, satiated, indulgence. Lusting to the maximum. That's where food law, legal, food law sin, food sin comes in. Is an area of lusting. It's the root of gluttony. Maximum food lust. That's gluttony. And you can be extremely careful with what you eat and very thin and trim and be a glutton based on the Bible. Legalism. Whether it's Colossian Church, London, 1780s, or IFC fundamentalism today. It's about your mind being transformed. Look at 1 Peter one, where we will be in weeks from now down the line in First Peter. We're in verse 6 still tonight. But go a little further down the line. Everything up to verse 12 of First Peter 1, as we're looking at, is about our salvation. Analyzing our salvation. First Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. All aspects of it. The last of which is... God's revelation from the prophets, verses 10 to 12. Then in verses 13 down to 21, he makes an application, shown in verse 13 by therefore. Therefore. He's going to make an application. After all the study of your salvation, First Peter 1, verse 13. What's his application? In bed by 11 p.m., up by 6 a.m., one dessert, two glasses, three fries, four hamburgers, and a partridge in a pear tree. What's the first thing he says in verse 13? Prepare, gird your minds for action. It's about the thought life. Always comes back to where holiness resides. Thought life. He talks about the mind in verse 13. He talks about lusts in verse 14. He talks about behavior then in verse 15. That's the direction. Inside out. Thoughts, verse 13. Emotions and desires, verse 14. Then coming out to behavior, biblical behavior, verse 15. That's what we're supposed to do. Legalism just completely wrecks that. I've got rules. I keep these outward rules. I'm good. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Number 5 in your note sheet. Do you understand the universe apart difference between these things? Points 1 and 2 underneath. 
Number one, trying to obey God's word in your own power while trusting your obedience will make you holy. Trying to obey God's word in your own power while trusting your obedience will make you holy. That's legalism. Versus number two, trusting God's power alone to enable you to be holy, to be obey his word. That's what holiness is. Who will then himself make you holy. Trusting God's power alone to enable you to obey his word. Who then will himself make you holy. On the blank lines, holiness is internal. Righteous thinking. Holiness is renouncing evil thinking. The Bible by itself does not make us holy. God makes us holy. You are not a partner in that process of power. Your will can't make you holy to any degree. Trying the best of you can is legalism. We didn't try to get saved. We rested in his salvation by faith. You don't try to be holy in your own power. You rest in faith. But what about striving, John? What about 1 Corinthians 9, beating my body into subjection? Yeah, we'll get to that. But the extreme of the commands to obey in the Bible lead us into pietism. So, Always knocking at the door of our minds are these four grace negators. Seeking to pounce when we open up our minds to them. Two of them, legalism and licentiousness, divorce us from grace working in our lives. And we fall from grace. If you go back to Galatians 5, legalism makes you fall from grace. Licentiousness as well. Go back to Galatians 5. See, the Galatians were returning to Mosaic law to try to make themselves godly. Circumcision, specifically in verse 2. And so Paul says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is now under obligation to keep the whole law. If you're going to make yourself righteous by law keeping, you've got to obey it all. Whether it's New Testament or Old Testament laws, trying to keep laws by themselves to make you righteous is not going to do it. So he says to them in verse 4, you've been severed from Christ. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation. Christ operates through grace. They're severing themselves from grace. That's why he says next, you who are seeking to be righteous, justified as righteous. Don't let that English word take you to the idea of conversion. I was saved. I was justified. Saved, justified. The word has a wider semantical meaning. He's already talking to believers here. Justified is seeking to be justified. One word in the Greek is referring to making yourself righteous by Old Testament law keeping. And what does he call that in verse 4? You have fallen from grace. That's divorce from grace is work. Not divorce from your salvation, but divorce from grace working. And then he tells you what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian, verse 5, through the Spirit by faith. There's where your power is. 
Waiting for the hope of righteousness from him. You wait, you pray, you read, you, you ask for his empowerment, and then you step in the water for him to part. Verse 6, faith working through love. You are running well, verse 7, who hindered you from obeying the truth. So again, you still have to obey the truth. This is not lawlessness. So that's what we call being divorced. Grace negators that divorce us from grace or legalism. And then he talks about licentiousness later on in the chapter. Why are they wedded into one chapter, Galatians 5? Because they operate together. First you try all these rules, they don't work. Boom, I'm just going to do what I want and sin like crazy. Always legalism slams you into licentiousness, which is the license to sin. But more sinister than these upfront ones, I believe, are the shades of grace. These do not cause us to outright divorce ourselves from grace living. They just are like an umbrella. As we carry grace living in our lives, these shades of grace are an umbrella that shield us from the light of grace living to work while such grace negators like legalism and licentiousness divorce us from grace, make us fall from grace. And that's your outline there. You can see where we've been there on the front side. We've seen at the bottom, down at the bottom, grace negator number one, licentiousness, grace negator number two. And now, last week, I took us into the issue of quietism. This is just review, so let me just quickly review here what quietism is. It's a more subtle, more sophisticated form of licentiousness. Pietism is a more sophisticated form of legalism. Quietism is a shade, a flavor of licentiousness. Pietism is a shade, a flavor of legalism. Quietism defined. The quietist seeks, sees believers as passive in sanctification and automatically receiving grace power. As soon as you're saved, you do nothing. But you can write on anything. doesn't matter whether you read the Bible, come to church, serve, none of that. Pray. God will do what he's going to do. As soon as you're saved, you do nothing. That's the motto. No decisions of the will are necessary to obey. Striving against sin is not needed. Trying to discipline yourself to obey God's word is futile. And it leads to these models. Number one, let go and let God. It's simple. Just let him do it. You do nothing. You can imagine how this leads to licentiousness, right? I think it's pretty obvious. Number two, a Christian is to trust God alone to make him holy. And that is correct. Write that underneath. That is a correct statement. But that's not what they mean. The Bible is not what they mean. We trust, we're to trust Christ alone for our salvation and sanctification. That's true. We agree with that. It is by his power we're transformed. The problem is their faith requires no will to act. And saving faith required a will to act, and sanctifying faith requires a will to act. You didn't just wait for God to zap you and save you. You had to submit to the gospel law. What was the gospel law? That you would repent and receive Christ by faith. It is the work of faith. I was trying to explain this to a quietist in the IFCA years ago. I said, uh, we were at camp, and I just said to him, abominable, an abominable man. He, it was just horrible what he believed. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. Just receive. Just receive. You don't have to do anything. So we had to do the work of faith. Oh, you 
mention the word work. Just yelled it out of the camp. What did I do? I'm sorry. Had no comprehension of what I was talking about. Number three, the quietist's philosophy number three. The Christian is to passively wait for change while trusting Christ. He needs not strive to obey. This is the fundamentalist that can sit in churches like ours. Oh, pastor, here he goes again, all this stuff we're supposed to do. Well, I just kind of like rest in Jesus, and he and I just do it together. I don't need to do all this. I'm going to heaven. Quietist. That's what you are. And boy, oh boy, does that lead to licentiousness. The old motto of the Christian faith is do nothing and you will shipwreck. And then number three, the danger. Quietest danger. Quietism will lead to mystically blaming God for one's lack of obedience and drives a believer into licentiousness as he no longer sees the need to make decisions of the will to obey Christ. Remember, we did not just passively wait for Christ to save us. We made a decision of the will to obey the gospel and prayed to be saved. You are to make daily decisions of the will to trust the Spirit to sanctify you as you daily intercede before the Lord in prayer. Recap. Trust Christ alone to receive grace, power, and do nothing. That's the quietest. Let's negate the shade of grace, shall we? Let's negate it. Refutation of quietism. Negating it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. The one I just mentioned. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. And verse 23 says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So he believes in the gospel, not works salvation, so that I may become a fellow partake of it, partaker of it. It's continuous. It's current. We continue to believe the gospel. We continue to live by faith. But then look at verse 24. You, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. See, the Corinthians were of the quietest realm, licentious. Do nothing. I'm free Christ to sin. So he goes and he attacks that from the issue of striving. Verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So you have to exercise self-control. We are called to exercise self-control. He's attacking licentiousness. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This is a major evidence of conversion. We exercise self-control. That's an action. That's an obedience command in verse 25. We don't just sit and let go and let God. We're to run in verse 26 in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. And I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. Attacking quietism. This plainly tells me I need to exercise, verse 25, run, verse 26, box, verse 26, Discipline my body. I have to do these things. I have to do these things. Hebrews 12. 
You may be sitting here as we turn to Hebrews 12. Oh, Pastor John, I'm confused. I, I thought you said we do this by faith and didn't have to do anything. Uh, 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 now you're confused and you've just swung into quietism. See how easy it is? Your sin nature knows how to trick you with confusion. This is who you are. This is who I am. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 4. You have not yet resisted, that's action, to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He's talking to believers. You have not resisted to set down against, to oppose with all your might. Your might? Your might in Christ. The might that is in you, Jesus Christ. Striving against sin. It's a present middle participle, one word. Striving against sin from anti and agonizomai. Against agonizomai. You need to strive against, antagonize, have agony, strive, fight. Mm -hmm. So there obviously are decisions of the will you and I are supposed to make and we're to fight like crazy to live the Christian life, aren't we? Uh How about Ephesians 4? Ephesians 4. Twenty-two. Ephesians 4.22. Attacking quietism at its root. The do-nothing mentality of licentiousness. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. You're supposed to lay it aside. It's supposed it's not a command. You're, you're doing this. This is what you are as a believer. And you're to be continuously renewed in verse 23. You need to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Oh, well, so I, I guess that I am just supposed to, with my own willpower, do these things. It says I'm to do this, lay aside, be renewed and put on. And so um, it sounds like I need to go back to that legalism and start trying with all my might to do these things. This is why we're so messed up. Quietism says you have the spirit. No more decisions need to be made. Then why is the spirit warning against our flesh in Galatians 5? Why are there countless commands in the New Testament? Verse 20 here in verse Ephesians 4. You're to learn Christ. You do not learn in this. Indeed, you have heard him and have been taught. You're to be taught in verse 21. There's activity. Oh. Okay, okay, all right, so it's not do nothing, so I just have to try as hard as I can in my own power. Now you've swung into pietism. Ah, forget this. That's right, forget it. Got to drive yourself to prayer and go back and say, I messed up. I swing to legalism and I swing to licentiousness and I swing to quietism and I swing to pietism and greater men than me have fallen like William Wilberforce. Mind is deceived. And you, want, they, you look at Christians, like I said last Sunday, they, they can't be bothered with corporate prayer, let alone private prayer. I mean, it's, it's a waste of time. Waste of time? This is your only hope. I can't, you can. I won't, you will. That's our prayer. 
then you have individuals who swing into the opposite extreme. Okay, I'm just going to do all these. I can just, I just do them. That's all I do. Just a machine. Boom, 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 boom. Obey. And that's grace negator number four we'll pick up next Sunday. Write it on a blank line there. Pietism. If quietism is faith distortion, swinging just into faith without any effort of obedience, then pietism is works distortion, swinging just into works without any faith. Works distortion. Let's define it. The pietist sees believers as active in sanctification and must obey God to receive grace power. We'd agree with that statement, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah. Sure would. Just like we agreed with number two under the quietest models. The quietest is to trust God alone to make him holy. You see, it's always an application that we get messed up. Again, defined. The pietist sees a believer as active in sanctification and must obey God to receive grace power. This is a movement that sprang up in the 17th century in Germany as a reaction to dead orthodoxy of many Protestant churches. Pietists had a great idea. It was a great thing. To their credit, they, gave, they returned us to a strong emphasis on Bible study, holy living, self-discipline, and practical Christianity. Pietists aren't their essence legalists to the full divorced capability. They're shading against faith. They've deteriorated over the centuries. They'll emphasize passages such as 2 Corinthians 7.1 and James 2.17 and so forth. That's all good. That's all good. We'll finish off the sermon note sheet today so you can really feel righteous completing all the blanks. The mottos of the pietist. Number one, the Christian has all resources in Christ. This is what they say. To obey. So all he must do is obey the commands of Bible. Pietist, motto number one. The Christian has all resources in Christ to obey, so all he must do is obey the commands of the Bible. That's correct. Write that down underneath that one. Just like the quietist said, the Christian is to trust God alone to make him holy. You see, we start, quietists and pietists start with righteous statements, and then they mess with them. We do have all the resources in Christ at conversion to obey and live the Christian life. We can thank the pietist tradition for this emphasis. When I was in art school, one of the things we had to learn about landscape painting is when to stop painting. You mess with it when you keep going. And, and it's like, uh, just one little stop. I remember one of my art teachers said, stop, John. You had it good and now you're messing it. That's what pietism is. Stop with that first statement. Now you're messing with it. And how do they mess with it? Number two. The Christian is simply to obey. The power is active and ready to go. There is no need to pray for God's help. Boom. You've just shaded grace. You've just wrecked it. You already have all the power. This is not correct under number two. The flesh and the believer is not annihilated. We're still warring against the spirit in Galatians 5. That's why pietism is a distortion of works. Assuming the believer must simply obey without any spirit dependence. It's an automatic elevator ride to the top of holiness. Just obey. Just do it. Just do it. Just do it. It's like the marine commander yelling at the grunt. 
Get down and do four, do four, do four, do four. The danger. Pietism leads to an overemphasis on self-effort, to the virtual exclusion of dependence on divine power, and drives the believer deeper into legalism. Leads to an overemphasis on self-effort to the virtual exclusion of dependence on divine power and drives a believer into legalism. Believer, the believer in the New Testament is not called by God to simply obey. There would be absolutely no need for prayer if that was the case. I can't keep these. I can't keep these straight. Don't worry. Your old nature is an expert on them. Your old nature's got these all figured out. You don't even have to worry about remembering these. You're good to go on legalism, licentiousness, quietism, and pietism. I don't know what to do. What do I do? What, you did a conversion. God, help me. I'm so messed up. I have to pray constantly. Yeah. Christ, the perfect God-man, had to pray. So there's the recap. You already have trusted Christ and received power, now simply obey. That's the recap of pietism. I'll close with an illustration. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a classic pietist. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Jones, reformist. Here's what he said in his book, Sanctified Through the Truth, page 54. He said this, and I quote, I do not know of a single scripture, and I speak advisedly, which tells me to take my sin, the particular thing that gets me down to God in prayer, and ask him to deliver me from it, and then trust in faith that he will, end quote. No wonder his prayer meetings were vanquished in his church. You don't need it. Did you hear that? I don't know of a single scripture that tells me to take my sin, the particular thing that gets me down to God in prayer and ask him to deliver me from it, and then trust in faith that he will. He's attacking grace living right there. He goes on, quote, Now that teaching is put to you like this, us. He's, he's attacking what we believe. You must say to a man who is constantly defeated by a particular sin, I think your only hope is to take it to Christ. And Christ will take it from you. But what does the scripture say? What am I to tell such a man? Am I to say to him, yes, take that sin to Christ and ask him to deliver you? No. What the apostle tells him is this, stop doing it. But wasn't that what we did at conversion? Didn't we have to ask Christ to deliver us? And didn't Colossians tell us that as you receive Christ, so walk in him? His teaching many times strayed into pietistic legalism. That was Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's devastation. Don't have to pray. Don't have to beseech the Lord of the harvest for help. Only striving? Just obey? The Bob Newhart comedy routine of the psychologist? Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it? No. So I will attack that next Sunday from the Word of God and attack the shade of grace called pietism. And this is where fundamentalism is, by the way. Fundamentalism is right there. Just go to church. Read your Bible. Have your quiet time. Say your little prayer of God be with me today. Just do it. 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 
I don't come to church because I don't f- to pray because I don't feel comfortable. And I don't come to pray out loud because I think everything's okay and I don't see any sin. And I, I pray silently and quietly to my Lord and Savior. I don't need to be in church publicly and praying. And, and, and my quiet time is good. I, I just read it and it zaps me. And I just obey because I believe God is giving me everything. I don't need to ha- ask his help. And there's no war with the flesh. Everything's fine. Everything's just fine. I'm okay. No, we're not. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we do not do as we would please. That's a believer's life. I can't win against the flesh. That's why that verse says the flesh wars against the spirit. I need God's help. Father, the goal of this is to show us how little we really know ourselves, how messed up we are, how easily we swing from legalism to licentiousness, from quietism to pietism. We can go through days of reading our quiet time and very little prayer. What pietists we are. And then we get discouraged and we just say, forget it all. Jesus, I'm already saved. I don't need to do any of this stuff. And then we swing into quietism and we're wrecked. And this is why so few are living the balanced Christian life of grace living. If only we do what Jerry Bridges told us that we had to do repeatedly, return to our salvation. You live it as you received him. By faith, by faith, in prayer, by faith. And then once we commit it unto you, Lord, in prayer and say, God, help me now, we strive and war in faith in the power of the Spirit to beat our bodies into subjection in the power of God. And this we will do if your mercy prevails upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.